Matthew, the author of, of this gospel, he is one of the 12 disciples who was called by Jesus to follow him, to live with him, serve with him, be in close-knit community with him for these three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And one of the things that Matthew emphasizes in his gospel is this idea that Jesus is a new beginning. Jesus is a new beginning. And, and so far in this series as we've looked at that, we've really looked at it mainly on the, the grand cosmic scope of things. That Jesus is a new beginning in the sense that he inaugurates this new era in God's redemptive history. God is reconciling the world to himself. Jesus ushers that in in a completely new way. But the new beginning of Jesus is also something that's immensely personal. Jesus makes possible a new beginning in each of us. And I think that Matthew has particular appreciation for that because of his own deep need for a new beginning. When Jesus met Matthew, uh, he's sometimes also referred to as Levi in the Gospel accounts, he was a tax collector, which for a, a Jewish man in first century Palestine was a profession characterized by bribery, corruption, and really being a sellout. So if, to be a tax collector meant you had embraced the Roman Empire to at least the degree that you were profiting off of its subjection of your own people. But however much others may have written off Matthew because of that, Jesus meets him right where he's at, and he calls him to follow him. And Matthew does. He leaves the tax booth. He actually walks away from the tax booth, literally, to follow Jesus. However many hours, however many long days or weeks or months or years he'd been a tax collector, however good the paycheck was and the financial stability for himself and his family, he recognizes that there's something better than all that he's known before, and so he leaves it behind and he follows Jesus. That's this new beginning for, for Matthew. And long before he ever understands anything about the cosmic scale and scope of Jesus as a new beginning, he understands it as something for him, something immensely personal. Now in today's text in Matthew 19, we're going to meet another man who's in need of a new beginning. Although the man for the man we're going to meet today, it's perhaps not near as obvious as it was for Matthew. This man we're going to meet today is wealthy. He's a moral and upstanding member of the community. Uh, so in both the culture of that day and the culture of our day, this is the kind of guy who appears least likely to need a reset button. But as we're going to see, he desperately, likewise, needs this new beginning of Jesus. And I would invite you to think and consider as we read this account that the same thing is true for every single human being that has ever lived. We're created by God. We're fallen into sin. And so we're people, because of that, desperately needy for a new beginning. And for some of us in the room, that's fairly obvious. Some of us, we wear our sin on our sleeve, or maybe like Matthew, we wear it on our business card. We've, because of our sin, because of maybe baggage or hang-ups in the history of our lives, we've shipwrecked our life in some kind of substantial way. So it's fairly obvious that we need a new beginning. We're asking for a new beginning. For others of us, it's perhaps not near as obvious. We look put together. Uh, we appear to be thriving. Maybe to some degree we are thriving. But Jesus likewise is going to call those kinds of people to a new beginning as well. And precisely because those people appear that they are thriving, it makes it that much more likely that those kinds of people are going to be the ones that walk away from Jesus. So you follow along with me 
as we read this morning. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16 and then going through verse uh, 30 is where we'll be. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, we, whether we recognize it or not, uh, we are people left to ourselves who desperately need a new beginning. And then in that new beginning, we need to be renewed constantly, brought back to our need and reminded of how you have met us in our needs, how you have made a new beginning for us. And so we pray this morning that we would learn much from your word. And thank you for Matthew your disciple, who faithfully recorded these words, and and even out of his own experience of knowing his desperate need to be renewed by you and made completely new by you, wrote this down that we might have an account of it. Uh, So work powerfully through it in our own hearts this morning. I pray that in your name. Amen. If you've been with us the past couple weeks, we've looked at a lot of parables that Jesus tells, stories about the kingdom of God. Unlike that, this is not a parable. This is a a historical event. This is an encounter with this wealthy young man. And we read the parallel accounts in Mark's Gospel, Luke's Gospel. They actually call this man a ruler. He's a ruler of some kind in the community. And this encounter, followed by the discussion that Jesus has with his disciples in light of it, teach us a few things about how someone experiences this new beginning, how someone enters the kingdom of God. And also, a few things about how someone does not experience that. So, a few things that we're going to look at in light of this text this morning. One is that it's impossible to enter the kingdom through procurement. The second one is that it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God through presumption. And then lastly, we'll talk about the impossible possibility of God's salvation. So first, it's impossible to enter the kingdom through procurement. This rich young man comes up 
And he attempts to procure the kingdom of God. That's how this encounter between Jesus and this man begins. Teacher, he says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life, to have eternal life? And this is actually a a, a totally understandable question for a couple different reasons. Um, For one, this is the way that most religions and worldviews in the world work. They're transactional by nature. So you do these things, and you don't do those things, and in the end, you achieve the, the goal of whatever that religion or worldview says the end goal is. In many religions, it's essentially like a a balance scale. And you put the good things you do over here, and you put the bad things you do over here, and as long as the good outweighs the bad, then you're fine. Uh, One example of this is Islam. The the religion of Islam is exactly like this. It's a balance scale, transactional kind of approach. But that balance approach, whether it's Islam or another religion or worldview that, that believes that, it puts people in a really precarious position, doesn't it? Because how can you ever know where you really stand in a given moment? You have a bad day or a bad week. You go out and do something really dumb last night. And all of a sudden you're worried, well, like, do my good deeds weigh enough to to outweigh that? Like, what if I don't have enough time to work it, to, to do enough good to outweigh that? You're only speculating. You're left hoping that that's the case. Unless there's a silver bullet kind of action that you can do to guarantee that the scale will tip in the direction of your good deeds. In Islam, for example, that's martyrdom. If you're killed, if you're a martyr in obedience to your faith, that tips the scale and you procure paradise for yourself. And so really what this rich man is doing is he's asking Jesus for the equivalent of that in the kingdom of God. What's the silver bullet good deed that I can do to guarantee that I will have entry to God's kingdom? The other reason that that this question is understandable, that this man brings this question, is that no doubt, this is the way that this man has been able to accomplish everything else in his life. When you're successful, when you're wealthy, you inevitably adopt this mentality that you are able to accomplish and procure anything that you want, so long as you're willing to put in the work or pay the cost. Right? Everything is possible as long as you will pay the price. Everything is for sale, so to speak. A lot of you have probably seen the film adaptations of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. One of the kids that tours the Chocolate Factory with Charlie is named Veruca Salt. She's the bratty, the bratty one. And she, in the movies, asks her dad for something in the factory, kind of whines and complains. And the dad talks to Willy Wonka and says, just name your price, Wonka. He's got his checkbook out. He's ready to cut, to cut a check to pay for it. It's that kind of mentality. Now, the way Jesus responds here to this man, it, it fascinates me. He first, you know, he, 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 he could go so many, I guess, different directions in this, but he basically holds this guy's hand to prove his point wrong. And, and we'll look at that here in just a little bit. So he first challenges this young man's understanding of the word good. And he says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only, there's only one who is good. And he's referring, of course, to God the Father. And so what he does as he says that is it starts to expose the flaw in this rich young man's thinking. When, when this rich young man is asking about the good that he can do to inherit eternal life, he's essentially insinuating he's able to act on the level of God. He's able to do that kind of good. And Jesus, I think, could stop there. That's a really strong point. Hey, you're calling yourself God when you try to do good deeds like that. 
But he doesn't stop there. He obliges this line of thinking in the rich young man. And he says, okay, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them in the Old Testament. Jesus mentions the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, and 5th commandments in that order, and then tacks on a commandment from Leviticus 19 about loving your neighbor as yourself. He says, here's, here's a few. Uh, these are clearly not the only commands in Scripture, but they are some that are more easy to perceive in an external way because they involve relationships with other people, things like that. And the rich young man responds, he says, all these I have kept, which is really bold to say that to Jesus. All these I have kept. Had he been present with Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount, he might not have been so confident. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes commands just like these, the command to not murder, the command to not commit adultery, and he teaches that we are guilty of those sins not only when we commit those external actions, but also when our heart is filled with anger, the kind of anger that leads to murder, or the kind of lust that leads to adultery. But again, Jesus doesn't just prove his point and kind of pin the guy down right there. He obliges his line of thinking. He doesn't even challenge him that he's kept all those commandments. He obliges him. He says, okay, you've kept those. Well, here's then the one silver bullet good deed that you lack. Sell everything you have, give it all to the poor, and then come and follow me. And now the rich young man stops. He has a lot of wealth. Great possessions, as Matthew says. And he's not willing to part with that. So he walks away from Jesus sorrowful, the text says. I'm going to go back for a second here. Why does Jesus oblige him? The man comes looking for the silver bullet good deed he can do. Why does Jesus give him the silver bullet good deed that he can do? Is Jesus implying here that you can procure for yourselves eternal life if you just sell everything that you have and give it to the poor? Not at all. Instead, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he says the one thing that will expose not only this man's flawed understanding of the way the kingdom of God works, but it will also show his desperate need for a new beginning. By telling him to sell everything he owns, Jesus is saying, you will have to give up not only your possessions, you will actually have to give up the means by which you have procured for yourself everything else in life. You'll have to become poor, you'll have to become dependent, you'll have to become unable, the very opposite of what you are now. You'll have to abandon your old way of living and your old way of thinking in order to gain what cannot be earned, what cannot be purchased. Or simply stated, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God through procurement. You cannot procure God's kingdom. So give up your possessions, give up your attempts and your means by which you've procured everything else, and come and follow me. And this is one of the most uh, distinctive truths of the good news of Jesus Christ. And particularly for people like you and me, it's also one of the most offensive aspects of the Christian faith. That we can't do a single thing to earn the kingdom of God, to earn a status or a standing in the kingdom of God. This rich young man is really a caricature, I think, for the way many of us in our culture think and live. We're the culture that has cliche phrases like, you can do anything that you set your mind to. So who thinks that way? Who thinks that way? Wealthy Western people who take for granted all that they've been given and all the options that they have in life. They're the people who think that way. 
You know who doesn't think that way? Impoverished, oppressed, needy people. If you go to a slum in a third world country and you tell the people there, you can do anything that you set your mind to, imagine how ridiculous you would feel. You know who else doesn't think that way? Children don't think that way. Needy, dependent children. Children who have no money or power with which to jockey for position. Children who need help going to the bathroom. Children who can't reach their cup on top of the counter. And Jesus says just before this passage that it's children to whom the kingdom of God belongs. We must become like children to enter God's kingdom. So this rich man suggests that it's humanly possible to procure God's kingdom. But by obliging him, Jesus actually leads the rich young man to prove the exact opposite. God's kingdom is for those who have nothing to offer in an effort to procure it. So those who attempt to do that, in the end, walk away sorrowful. Second thing we see in this text, it's impossible to enter God's kingdom through presumption. After the rich young man walks away, it becomes this teaching moment for Jesus with his disciples. And it's a teaching moment not just about this one particular man, but about rich people in general. And a really important note for us to to grapple with in this text is that when Jesus talks about rich people, it almost certainly includes you and me. In our our current political landscape, a lot of the the rhetoric is about the 1%. The 1% wealthiest people in the United States and how much we should tax or not tax them, and we are the 99% and they are the 1%. That's the rhetoric. And to my knowledge, nobody in in this room is part of that that 1%. We'll we'll do a special class about tithing and things like that if that's you, I guess. We'll we'll save that that for another day. But but we are often, as as we engage in that rhetoric here in our own country, we're often blind to the, to the massive wealth of our nation on a, compared to the rest of the world. According to uh, globalrichlist.com, you can go look this up yourself, it's kind of a fun website to play around with. But according to that site and all the research they've done there, if you make more than $32,500 a year, that puts you in the top 1% of the richest people in the world by income. Now, I know there's cost of living factors. I know there's all kinds of things you have to consider there. But if you make more than $32,500, which is a lot of us in the room, you or your, or your family, that puts you in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world by income. So I think we are likely to make the same error as this rich man and to try to secure and, and procure for ourselves God's kingdom. But then beyond that, there's another error that we are particularly susceptible to as wealthy Christians, So maybe we come to recognize that we can't earn or buy our way into God's kingdom. And we realize instead we enter God's kingdom the way everybody else does, by faith in the mercy of God. But then we start to think that, well, as long as we don't try to earn our salvation, as long as we're not trying to buy it anymore, we can go on pursuing wealth and pursuing possessions like normal, unhindered, unencumbered. But behind that view, I'll suggest, is a ton of presumption. And it's presumption that Jesus' teachings don't apply to you and me. See, Jesus teaches here, as well as many other places in his, in his three years of, of ministry, that money and wealth are deceitful. That there's a danger to money and wealth. They compete for our devotion. And he says earlier in Matthew's Gospel, well, you cannot serve both God and money. 
So to follow Jesus, to devote your life to him and God's kingdom, means that you and I can never devote our lives to or be focused on money or wealth or possessions. It's so difficult for rich people like us to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. Jesus says here, it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle. That's hyperbole, right? Camel's one of the largest land animals in first century Palestine, fitting through this tiny little opening in a needle that you'd put thread through normally. But rich people like us hate that teaching so much that we try to find some other explanation for this for this teaching. One popular one that maybe a lot of you in the room have heard is that Jesus isn't really talking about a sewing needle. He's talking about a smaller gate within the larger gates of a large city. And this smaller gate would be popularly referred to as the needle's eye. Because it was primarily designed for foot traffic, for a camel to fit through this smaller gate, a camel would have to take all of the cargo off of it that it was carrying and kneel down And then it could go through the needle's eye. The application then being that rich people just need to unburden themselves of some of the things that they carry and humble themselves in order to enter the kingdom. But you know what kind of evidence exists for that interpretation? None. None. And actually, the fact that someone would come up with that and it would become so popular in Western culture only is further evidence of how impossible it is for rich people to enter God's kingdom. We resist this so much that we will buy hook, line, and sinker into somebody give me another explanation that doesn't make it that hard. See, if something is difficult, like a camel fitting through the eye of a small gate, well, then rich, successful people, we presume we're the ones that are going to be able to do that then. We've done everything else. We can do that. But Jesus isn't saying it's hard or difficult. He's saying it's impossible Not a camel through a small gate, a camel through the eye of a sewing needle. I think this is one of the places in the Bible where you and I are most likely to try and read Scripture rather than allow Scripture to read us. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is that we come to this text and we immediately try to figure out how it doesn't apply to us. How we get to be the exception to Jesus' words about the dangers that exist in material wealth and possessions. But any time that we approach Scripture, we approach the teachings of Jesus with the goal of finding a loophole, that's taking an incredibly presumptive posture. It means that we think at the end of the day that we know better than Jesus does. It's like, Jesus, I I know you say that money corrupts and that money is deceitful and that you can't serve God and money, but actually, I think you can serve both. And even more than that, I'd like to give it a try because I think I'll be able to do it. That kind of presumption is actually exactly what's behind the original fall of humanity into sin. Satan tempts Eve, and the line of thinking there is like, well, God said this, but don't you know better than God? Doesn't God really want this for you, even though he said that? So it's this kind of presumption that makes it it impossible for us to enter God's kingdom. It makes us desperate for a new beginning in the first place. Now the question that you'll find yourself asking, probably some of you already have been asking this, if you haven't yet, you will. Does this mean then that all of us are supposed to sell everything that we own and give it to the poor? And the answer, I think, to be faithful to Scripture and, and, and the way this plays out even among Jesus' followers in the early church is no. 
Jesus doesn't command everyone to sell their possessions, give everything away. Uh, scripture, the history of the church, is filled with examples of men and women who are not rebuked for having money, who are actually encouraged by their generosity with their money. They're not reprimanded. They're not asked to give it away like this man is. But as we say that, how fast are you running to that conclusion when you enter a text like this? How fast do you run to that conclusion? I think we have to recognize our tendency to be presumptive about this topic. And I love the way that one scholar in particular put this. He said this, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. That makes sense? I'll read that again. That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to, to whom he would issue that command. In other words, the more likely you are to immediately go to this text and then get, find an exception for yourself, the more likely it is that Jesus would say exactly the same thing to you that he said to the rich young man. So third and finally, let's talk about the impossible possibility of God's salvation. This passage builds to verses 25 and 26. And seeing the rich young man walk away, and then hearing Jesus speak about how hard it is, how impossible it is for the rich to enter God's kingdom, the disciples ask, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And Jesus looks at them, and he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If it's impossible to enter God's kingdom through procurement, and if it's impossible to enter God's kingdom through presumption, then then what's the answer? How does anyone enter the kingdom of God? And the answer is grace. The grace of God makes what is otherwise impossible possible. And and as we see the rest of the story play out in Matthew's Gospel and even beyond that into the the letters of the New Testament, we come to find that the only way that anyone ever enters the kingdom of God is by the grace of God through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the very one telling the story, the very one saying that, that the impossible becomes possible with God. So what is impossible for you and I to do, God does for us. And that's the definition of of grace. The reason that it's impossible to enter God's kingdom through procurement and presumption is because both of those things reject the grace of God. Right, to attempt to procure God's kingdom is to attempt to earn grace. It's an attempt to earn or merit what cannot be earned or merited. To presume upon grace, to assume that you can follow Jesus without being radically transformed is likewise to trample upon grace. It's to choose to remain in your own kingdom firmly entrenched while you are claiming to supposedly be entering a new kingdom. The grace of God is a scandal. And I would suggest that is so much more true for people like you and me, largely at least in this room, who are accustomed to having things go well, by and large who are accustomed to success, who are are accustomed to doing and being able to accomplish whatever we set our minds to. For people who have largely been able to pay the price to achieve all that they have done in life. And for people like that, grace is the opposite of how everything else in life has happened. How everything else in life has worked. So it truly is 
a new beginning precisely for the people who don't find themselves asking for a new beginning. Grace rejects the offer of the self-reliant to save themselves and instead transforms them to not only receive grace, but to be completely remade with a new heart and new eyes and a, and a new object of wholehearted devotion. And the grace of God, and we see the passage close this way, it's not only the entry point to God's kingdom, it's what we need over and over again as we try to live out our lives in the realities of God's kingdom. So for the, for the rich and the self-reliant and the successful in particular, there's this pull back into a mode of procurement or a mode of presumption. And the way that this passage ends here is in this exchange between Peter and Jesus gives us a glimpse into, I think, what this looks like. Peter says at the end, Jesus, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. What will we have? And it seems that there are two things simultaneously at play in Peter at this very moment. As he wrestles with Jesus' words about the impossibility of people entering God's kingdom, he's insecure and he needs assurance. But at the same time, he's tempted to try to find that assurance by self-righteously comparing himself to the rich young man who just walked away. Hey, Jesus, we did better than that, right? We're doing it the right way. Haven't we earned something for that? Doesn't, doesn't God owe us something now? It sounds like he's like right on the cliff of this mentality of procurement and presumption. And Jesus' response here masterfully speaks to each part of Peter that's happening there. His words are words of both assurance and rebuke. In other words, they're words of grace. Because grace is God making possible what is otherwise impossible, grace is assurance for the part of Peter that is weak and that is insecure and that is struggling. Yes, Peter, you follow me? you will reign with me in God's kingdom. You will sit on a throne, even, in God's kingdom. But grace is rebuke for the part of Peter that is self-reliant and self-righteous and leading him to think he can procure salvation by his good work of leaving everything that he had. Jesus says at the end, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. In other words, Peter, never forget the impossibility of entering the kingdom of God through procurement or presumption. The impossible is only possible through grace, through God, who makes the impossible possible. So, friends, as we are all in need of our own new beginning, and then a constant renewal in that new beginning, where do you find yourselves today? Do you find yourselves confident, self-reliant, patting yourself on the back for what you've been able to accomplish and do? If that's you, then may you hear the rebuke of grace to give away what you have, to give up the means by which you have secured for yourself everything else. To give up the presumption that you know better than God does and that you can wholeheartedly devote yourself to Him and to wealth and possessions at the same time. The first shall be last. Or do you find yourselves weak and feeble? Do you, try, do you find yourselves trying to faithfully follow Jesus, but just painfully overwhelmed and aware of your inadequacy to do that, your inability and your insufficiency to pull that off? Then may you hear the assurance of grace. 
Because what was always and will always be impossible for us to ever accomplish on our own, God has done for us through the work of Jesus. And the last shall be first. God's grace makes the impossible possible. So may God bring about a new beginning in each of us, and then may he bring that new beginning to completion. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, we pray you would help us to see our need for a new beginning if we don't see it. Pray that your grace would rebuke us in that way. For those of us who are painfully aware that we need it and struggling and weak and unable to, to secure it for ourselves, I pray that we would hear the assurance of grace. That's the whole point of the way that you work. You do what cannot be done. Pray that as we come to this table this morning, we would see just again the beauty of your grace. Jesus, you have lived a life that we could not. You have died a death in our place. God, you look, when you look at us because of faith, because of your mercy, you look at the finished work of Jesus that counts on our behalf rather than our inability. And this is the, this is the beautiful reality of what life in your kingdom looks like. We are invited to the table where we otherwise would never belong, where we could never secure a spot for ourselves. You have invited us to come. And so we come to this table this morning thinking about that beautiful reality of your grace. Meet us, strengthen us, and may your grace simultaneously, like it does to Peter, assure us of your work and that it counts on our behalf and rebuke us for where we presume that we know better than you do. I pray all this in your name. Amen. At this table is a weekly reminder for us. Uh, the Word of God is not just something that we hear and read. The Word of God in the sacraments of communion and baptism becomes visible. And so we have this tangible picture as we come to this table that Jesus gave His body, gave His blood on our behalf, that He might bring about a new beginning, both on that grand cosmic scale of things, but also in an immensely personal way. So as we come this morning, I invite you to see both of those things. There's a new beginning that's made possible in the history of God's redemption. <laughs>